Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 11, Accountability. So I guess I use my social media now to more just kind of inspire my friends. But, you know, it's it's crazy because, you know, I have moved on from this idea of being like uh, this, this fitness brand but now, you know, like I, I just uh, signed up for the millennial professor, like to be a moniker that I could have on Instagram. And I'm like, what would I want to do with that? And it's interesting. I think it, it says something about our culture um, that people are just like, so like, how can I monetize or how can I make something that I do already into a social media empire? That's Bethany Edwards, the science professor whom we met in episode four. You may recall that Bethany ended up being diagnosed with an eating disorder after becoming a fitness competitor. And her obsession with following social media influencers led her to want to become a personal trainer and a social media influencer herself, despite the fact that she already had a serious academic career. While her experience with monetizing her body may seem particularly extreme given the eating disorder, her story is a good jumping off point for today's podcast and a continuation of our conversation from our last episode about neoliberal feminism. Something Sarah Benet Weiser said in our last episode is so important that I think we need to hear it again. You know, people want to be valued. Um, I, you know, for me, feminism, the definition of feminism is about the value of women, right? It's not about equality. It's not based on some rights, you know, liberal ideology of rights. It's about valuing women, um, in a particular kind of way. And so, so if we're valued in this, in, in, in a way that is about our bodies then it makes total sense, um, you know, that, that people, women would, would engage in this self-discipline that seems against their best interests, right? The definition of feminism is about the value of women, but the way that women currently seek and gain value is through investment in the self, specifically in the body. As Catherine Rottenberg, the author of The Rise of Neoliberal Feminism, put it last time, the self-brand is about reducing yourself to a number. It's about making yourself accountable, both accountable to your followers for maintaining the brand and upholding patriarchal norms of beauty, health, and fertility, and accountable as in a financial entity, one that can be counted. Your social media accounts are both an account of your authentic life and, as a way to monetize, a taxable entity. Bethany, as an inspiration to her friends, as a body-based brand, as a fitness competitor posting about her recovery journey online, is the ideal example of what it means to be accountable. 
She uses her social media to give an account, a story, of her fitness and nutrition practices and of her recovery. She's also using social media to be held accountable for or beholden to first her fitness and nutrition practices and then her eating disorder recovery. And finally, as a commodified entity, as a brand, she is also accountable in the sense that her body and her presence online are monetary entities, and she can therefore be counted, taxed, and monetized. The trouble with all of this is that the more you reduce yourself to a number, the more you're able to be commodified, the very thing that feminists have been arguing against since the term was born. Women aren't objects, and yet, under a neoliberal framework, we seem to unconsciously be treating ourselves as such. Here's Sarah Benet Weiser again. When you think about something like a self-brand, um, you know what happens when you when you uh, cre- when you're trying to create a brand of yourself, right, on social or digital media. One of the things that happens is that your worth is measured by the number of followers you have or the number of likes that you have or the number of retweets or, you know, again, this kind of metric capitalism um, where where our bodies become the commodity, where it is we we in fact kind of uh, become a certain kind of product um, that circulates in this media landscape. And so I think that there's a relationship between viable body and visibility. The more visibility you have, the more commodified you can be. And visibility feeds on itself. It, it, It can never remain stagnant. Visibility just leads to more visibility and then it becomes this cycle. And so that's, you know, that's kind of what I mean there. It's not actually that the body is an actual commodity, but that we start thinking of ourselves in terms of brands and products and attention economy, then we stop thinking of ourselves in terms of subjectivity. When we lose our sense of self as subject and instead begin thinking of ourselves in objectified terms, the more we invest in a certain identity and find that others are willing to invest in that identity as well, well, it's easy to start fooling ourselves into thinking that the thing we're selling is the thing we actually are. And the irony of all of this is that the more we lose our sense of self as subjects, the more we have to seek our sense of self in the subjectivity of others. We have to look for examples of ways to be healthy, successful, and empowered, and we find them online in the images of women who have already gained a following. I spoke with Dr. Rachel O'Neill, a graduate fellow at the London School of Economics, who's also doing research on wellness entrepreneurs, to try to understand what it is that makes the image of the successful female entrepreneur online so attractive. In terms of the fact that they were, in terms of the way that they initially drew their own own followings, typically through social media, through blogs, through YouTube channels, through uh, Instagram, I think that there was an appeal of vitality, of having a sense of enormous well-being, of having energy, and um, these kinds of promises of of, of feeling really well in oneself. That has a kind of intuitive appeal in, in many ways. Not to be overly cynical about it, but I think one of the things that initially drew the mainstream media into reporting on these women and, and their, you know, their business doings was that they fit a particular media prototype. Um, they are the, the specific cohort I have in mind are young, they're white, they're slim and able-bodied. 
and they're conventionally attractive. They're, they're very beautiful young women. And there's a, a big appetite, I think, in the media for not just images of these kinds of women physically, but images of these kinds of women being successful, being professionally successful. And I think that these women serve to, the, the media narrative serve to kind of satiate this desire for images of, of female success. I think this has been going on for quite a while. Um, and I think that it is part of a way of grappling with continued inequality. So it is not good news in the sense of being a good news story to continually report on sexism and inequality in the workplace. And yet we know that these stories need to be reported on because at a factual level, these issues persist. And so I think the media has a way of offsetting this narrative of continued sexism, continued oppression, continued inequality by really highlighting and foregrounding images of female success. And in part, I think this, this happens as a way of, in the literature on post-feminism, this has been described as a way of offsetting a renewed feminist energy. So oh, as a way of kind of keeping feminism from coming to the fore once again, from being a very active political movement. Um, and I know you've already spoken to people who've, who've written on, in, on this area. Um, and I think that the spotlighting of, of these particular wellness entrepreneurs fit within that broader narrative. And yet at the same time, fed into ideas, of course, of female empowerment and female success. Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting to me having been kind of a part of this. You know, I first discovered wellness entrepreneurship in 2012. Um <laughs> that was basically when I started, which, you know, uh, Catherine Rottenberg writes about the, the rise of neoliberal feminism kind of uh, occurring around that same time. And I, I felt very, very strongly seeing these images of successful women online um, having a, an effect on me. You know, I mean, I wanted to also contribute to that. You know, you mentioned it was kind of offsetting this renewed uh, feminist energy but at the same time I felt I felt at the time however mistakenly I might have felt it or you know however I might have felt it with a lack of intersectionality I felt like I was doing something to prove that I could be a successful female no I completely understand that and I would say that some of the women I, I've spoken to would see themselves as operating in a similar manner and yet at the same time this is quite an individualized approach to female success and, and female empowerment in the sense that, one, people are generally operating these businesses individually or very often operating these businesses individually. And while they may be participating in a wider network and there is certainly a sense of community, at the same time, this largely remains a kind of a movement market. There are substantial commercial interests at stake here. Well, it's somewhat different, I suppose, from thinking about feminism as a political movement. Um, and and so if, if feminism is a, is a political movement, then what we're seeing with the, the this kind of a movement market in wellness is, is quite different because of the financial interests that are involved. Okay, so let's tie this whole discussion about neoliberalism back into wellness, to episode one, the Ouroboros, because I think it's very easy for us to get lost in the weeds simply talking about neoliberalism, which affects more than just this one aspect of our lives. When we see wellness as it's framed in 2019 terms, what we're seeing is not just the physical act of being in good health. 
It's an industry. It's a self-presentation. It's a brand. It's a way to signal your value in a society that increasingly commodifies and charges for health, nutrition, and fitness. At the same time, as we become a society that's increasingly invested in the idea of feminism, signaling that we're feminists while also profiting from distinctly anti-feminist forces like, say, neoliberal capitalism, we increasingly need to conflate our other practices with feminism in order to maintain the veneer that our actions are indeed feminist. What I mean by that? We want to believe and we want others to believe that our actions are feminist. So we just say, I am a feminist and therefore anything I do is, by its definition, feminist. So when we engage in practices that promote weight loss, obsessive fitness, fat phobia, orthorexia, etc., while also loudly proclaiming that we are feminists, we are allowed to profit from those practices even if they are not objectively feminist. As long as our appearances obscure the truth of the situation, we can get away with a lot under the guise of feminism or empowerment. Rhetoric is that powerful. As we talked about in the last episode, feminism as a political movement has specifically been corrupted by the interference of neoliberalism. The commercial interests at stake in keeping women obsessed with their bodies are multifold, from purveyors of diet pills to makers of quote-unquote healthy foods, from gym franchises to fashion brands, from multi-level marketing companies to health coaching programs. When we home in on the forces that are driving us toward becoming an individual entrepreneur in this culture— it becomes impossible to ignore the influence of the things that we see and hear every day, especially in our always online world, on convincing us that dropping out of the workforce to peddle health and fitness is the cure to what ails us. And when we see and hear these messages cloaked as they are under the mantles of feminism and empowerment, it becomes very easy to buy into the idea that this is indeed the right path forward. So, seeing lady bosses empowering lady bosses as they build their nutrition and fitness empires? Inspiring, but not necessarily feminist. Let's jump back into my conversation with Sarah Benet Weiser. How then does that tie back into the, the political idea of representation? Um, is it just that we've created this feedback loop where visibility leads to more visibility, but no actual change? It's not just that. I think that it has the potential to be just that. And so I, I also approach, um, you know, kind of popular feminism in particular with with um, a, a sort of ambivalent position, because I think it's really, really important that we that we are seeing so many more um, messages and images of feminism, that feminism is being embraced in a popular way. And that happens because of accessibility and because of the economy of visibility. Right. So so I think that it's important. Um, it's important that we have this, this circulation of feminist messages, but we also have to think about what that kind of circulation excludes, what other feminisms don't kind of, um, are not able to move into the spotlight. Um, what, you know, how, how the politics then become, you know, again, have the potential to just be in a feedback loop, you know, loop rather than resulting in some kind of social change. And I think that, the ways in which, you know, uh, there's been a kind of uh, retaliation or, or reaction to things like reproductive rights in the United States and, and you know, just general online misogyny and all this stuff is, is part of that feedback loop, right? It just, it, you know, kind of prevents uh, feminism from actually resulting in some, in social change, at least some of the time. 
Part of why we're stuck in this feedback loop, why we're stymied from creating real social change, change that might prevent people from feeling like they need to drop out of the workforce and become entrepreneurs in order to be happy with their lives, is because we have been led to believe that individual financial empowerment is the route to happiness. And as we learned in episode one, we've also been led to believe that dieting and thinness are prerequisites for happiness. And to tie it all together, we've heard through the stories of the women who have spoken on this podcast that dieting and thinness are also seen as pathways towards individual financial empowerment. As Catherine Rottenberg and I discussed in our interview, happiness is a crucial influence on neoliberal feminist culture. Catherine draws her analysis from other scholars like Lynn Siegel and Sarah Ahmed. Notions of happiness function in society as a promise um, that uh, directs people, subjects towards certain objects, certain goals, certain behaviors um, that are considered necessary ingredients for the good life according to that culture. And in our society, as we've just discussed, these objects, goals, and ingredients for the good life are based around fitness, nutrition, and a certain presentation of the body and one's wellness. So it's not coincidental that under neoliberalism, people think that happiness comes from enterprise, right? So um, that's precisely what is now considered part and parcel of the good life, a successful business. Um, and if you're also helping people, that certainly is an added good. Um, but I also think that um, thinking about life coaches or even, you know, women who are stay-at-home moms but try and uh, create businesses from home, um, that in a sense, there are only winners and losers in what's some you know would call the neoliberal competition and it's only through smart investment that you become a winner and i think that's also a really uh important point in terms of the way that we understand why um uh sort of starting one's own business becomes a, a real pull for many many people because it's both entrepreneurial and it's a way of becoming sort of a winner in this competition being self-reflective about these terms is really important um if the promise of happiness, if happiness operates as a kind of means of directing people's hopes and desires through emotional affective roots, then um, we have to be self-reflective about where certain kinds of promises are leading us. Um, and also, of course, who doesn't want to be happy, right? So I would also add, you know, only half facetiously, who doesn't want to be balanced, to live a balanced life. But what is a balanced life under neoliberal capitalism? What is a balanced life when balance is portrayed as taking your health practices to the extreme? What is health when your entire life centers on the pursuit of the hustle? These notions are presented as really, really desirable, but of course they do orient us in particular directions and they help shape what we want. Um, but on the other hand, and here's going back, can we talk about the pursuit of happiness? Um, I don't want to dismiss happiness as simply a means of control. And here I want to draw again on the work of Lynn Siegel. And she has um, an amazing new book on happiness where she argues that it's called ha radical happiness. She argues that happiness needs to be reconceived as um, an activity and not a static emotional state. Um, and so what she does in her book, uh, Radical Happiness, is that she uh, argues for radical happiness and not, which is... Um, which is basically collective resistance to oppression in its various forms with its shared sense of agency. For her, that symbolizes the very essence of radical happiness. And so she is uh, promoting this, this idea of radical happiness and not the pursuit of individual happiness, which um, hasn't 
done much for many of us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's kept us busy. Uh, it's kept us busy. Yes. And kept us pretty miserable too. Yeah. Um, so what she, I mean, what she claims and I tend to agree with her is that these moments of collective agency or working together towards some common goal, while they're often fleeting, they don't last they make us feel more alive and hence happier. You were talking about the community within um, the burlesque dancing. And I think those kinds of communities are really important. And I'm not sure even that you need to have broad uh, political aims or objectives, but it's about working together on some project, um, particularly when these projects help us connect and, and express concern for the others. And I think that that for me um, is a way that we can continue creating hope um, and of course, as we said before, the pursuit of individual happiness has proven to itself pretty hollow. All we need to do is look at around, look around us, and you know who who do we see that's really happy in some sort of bizarre, you know, way. We have mental health crisis. We have grotesque levels of inequality. We have environmental catastrophe. I mean, so yes, I think we should be talking about the pursuit of happiness, but of radical happiness, not individual happiness. And of course, but it's hard because as exactly as you said, when we're looking around, what do we see? And what we see is people who are performing this version of middle class happiness, balance, stability, whatever it is you want to call it. Um, and so we're just trying to replicate what we see because that's the vocabulary we have. Um, and it's it's difficult because, of course, with the language of, of platforms like Instagram, especially, um, it's the whole the whole way that you gain capital, right? Social, financial, any kind of capital is by performing the highest standard of, of that same thing that you were already seeing. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, I think it's about, um, it's getting likes, it's getting people to, um, yeah, it does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the, 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 the tragedy is that you have to get out of Silicon Valley. But the ethos of Silicon Valley, and to be honest, the ethos of Wall Street, too, is spreading. We can try to outrun it, but the internet and globalization has helped it to spread, and it is contagious. Let's take the theory aside. I think that it is it is easier um, to turn inward and focus on the self, especially if one has the economic and cultural resources to do that, um, than it is to go out into what is becoming an increasingly frightening reality. I mean, and so, and fight for transformative structural change. I think that many people, I mean, we see this in the mental health crisis, we see this um, in all kinds of ways, um, feel very isolated and they feel that they have less and less power to change society. So we change ourselves. And the way that our culture has been structured is to reward only those who appear to be engaged in self-discipline. It's this self-discipline, reframed as entrepreneurial spirit, this cage with the bars labeled freedom, as Pace Smith put it, that forms the basis of my concern about health coaching, personal training, and other body-based businesses. For years, dieting and over-exercise has been framed as what we owe to ourselves. Most cultural critics will focus on the why— Fat phobia, shame, prejudice, American puritanism. But I'd like to shift the conversation slightly and look at the word owe. Owe is an economic word. To owe is to be in debt. To be owed is to stand to gain. 
And we believe that we are constantly in debt. We owe it to ourselves to go on yet another diet or start yet another exercise program. Just as we are experiencing the ill effects of neoliberal capitalism on our global economic financial system and of neoliberal feminism on our individual emotional states, I believe we're also experiencing the ill effects of neoliberal wellness, the belief that health is an individual endeavor whose effects can be purchased and whose recipients are determined by the market. Neoliberal wellness is an act of consumption. You must be constantly seeking new highs, new PRs, personal records, new modalities. You can't stagnate or you get left behind. Pilates not enough? Try hot yoga. Hot yoga no longer trendy? Why not put Pilates in a hot room? That not enough to differentiate your personal brand? Why not add a new piece of fitness equipment and call it a new style of exercise? Oh, but you don't have the latest gear? Don't worry, you can buy it. I hear Amazon will ship it in two days. Just enough time for the trends to shift and a new form of fitness with new equipment and a higher price point to come around. And it's the same thing with diet. When I was part of the paleo nutrition community, I watched as people went from debating whether or not potatoes were safe to eat to doing increasingly restrictive and expensive detoxes to literally trying to tamper with their genetics. I've watched former friends and acquaintances try to optimize themselves into perfection only to develop extreme anxiety and depression, which, of course, they try to optimize away with mycotoxin-free coffee and diatomaceous earth. None of this comes cheap, which means that you have to make money in order to keep up with the never-ending chase for increasingly more rigorous and stringent health and exercise trends. For increasingly more rigorous and stringent health and exercise trends. What you owe to yourself is often enough to put you into actual financial debt. I've also noticed a subtle shift in the language around wellness since starting this podcast a few years ago. For a long time, it was all about how you owe it to yourself to partake in wellness culture. Now, it's also about how you are owed health and time for self-care because of all the sacrifices that you make in order to participate in neoliberal capitalist culture. With the rise of neoliberal feminism, the injunction to lean into corporate America while also somehow maintaining your looks, your household, your children if you have them— there's been a parallel rise in the idea that you, as an individual woman, are owed health because you are personally hustling as hard as you can. It's infiltrated our discourse. For example, here's some ad copy written by the fitness company Peloton, as read by John Favreau and John Lovett on an episode of Pod Save America from September 14th, 2018. Pod Save America is brought to you by Peloton. Even with a busy schedule, working all day and running around for others, you can still get an intense workout in the convenience and comfort of your living room. Running around for others. It's like, <laughs> all right, maybe put down the cross and get on the bike, you know? <laughs> the idea is that instead of rest, you are owed time to participate in our most performative form of consumer culture. But how do you get what you're owed if you're not making enough money in your job or your job doesn't give you enough time to participate in wellness culture? Well, you drop out, and you ask others who have the means to do so to pay you. Here's Catherine Rottenberg again. The body is one of the sites that um, we still feel that we have, con we have control over. So when everything else is, feels totally out of our control, um, the body becomes a site of uh, where we can manipulate it in, in ways that we think is, is, is asserting a certain kind of control. 
Um, so, and I'll get back to that. I think and I'll get back to that in a second. I think that if it's true that neoliberalism individualizes us and make and remakes human beings in the image of capital, right? Um, we invest in ourselves in order to maintain our value on the market. The body is then one of the sites of investment and it is actually the most visible aspect of ourselves. Um, and so not only is it the way that we project our, our, our success to the world, it's also the way that we ourselves can more easily see the fruit of our investment, so to speak. So it becomes a very sort of um, visible uh, manifestation of uh, these individual investments. And of course, the ideals are very, very specific or very particular. Um, and again, the, the other aspect, I think, of why the body, the obsession with the body and the fitness, it ha again, comes back to this fact, the fact that we, um, the if the world is as out of control as uh, I think it feels, then it makes sense in a sense to turn inward and try to control what we feel what, that we can, you know, and that's our corporeal, our existence, our bodily existence. We can control um, how much we work out. We can control whether we smoke or not. We can control, or at least we, we, we think we can. So the illusion of control. Recall Bethany Edwards from earlier in this episode. Bethany felt that the only way to be valued was to get paid for her body. Even working on her PhD, she became obsessed with the idea of hustling for success and showing that work on her body. I want to keep this peak physique and training people and building a business and um, you know, showing other people how to like, get the fit is how I do it. Um, and so I like invested so much money. I became, I got certified as a personal trainer. I was like working at this gym the whole time. I'm like working on my PhD. So I'm like using, and I'm thinking I might be able to build, you know, this like side business. And, you know, that's probably like the millennial, I guess, mindset around money, right. It's like, we all must hustle. Um, and so I like thought that this was like the way out. And in the end, like I ended up getting a job at a gym. I was making like $25 an hour maybe, but I was only getting like three or four clients a week. Right. So, <laughs> and I was, you know, my personal relationships were crumbling because I was hungry all the time. I was like food obsessed. I like started tracking macros and like thought that that was the way, you know, after like all this orthorexia and that just made everything worse. We do this because it's what we see. Especially here in America, we have the belief that hustle leads to happiness. And at the same time, we believe that self-care is essential for happiness. But self-care and hustle are in most cases, at least the way that we practice them today, mutually exclusive. The hustle is about grinding past your limits. Self-care is about setting firm boundaries. Yet somehow we've managed to conflate the two. And the way we've managed to do that is to redirect the conversation to focus instead on this idea of earning happiness. Earning, another economic word. And how do you get what you earn in a capitalist society? Well, you have to take it from someone else. Here's more of my conversation with Rachel O'Neill. That's, I think, the, the problem with all of this, right? Is So I guess there's, there's a lack of awareness about how neoliberalism has so infiltrated our own our own awareness <laughs> i guess or our lack of awareness i don't know um it has it so infiltrated the kind of the the way that we just exchange um basic social currency at this point that we don't even know how to motivate ourselves without profit 
And in many cases, we can't. You know, even a a well-off, middle-class white person still is in a position where if they say, oh, no, 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 I'm just going to volunteer my time or I'm going to build a collective or then they they themselves will not be well off very soon, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, at least the way mm-hmm. I, I'm living in Silicon Valley. So, you know, any any hour that is not spent hustling is an hour that you've lost in terms of paying rent. So um, <laughs> um, but so one of the things that's so interesting to me specifically about the idea of care is that, you know, so when I wanted to become first I wanted to become a personal trainer then I became a health coach um I did believe that the stuff I was doing would help people um specifically Mm -hmm. the kind of health coaching that I wanted to do was to help women in eating disorder recovery so working with their therapist or if they're post-recovery to help keep them on track and kind of develop that next sense of self for the rest of their lives but um if I didn't get paid for it then I couldn't do that work because then I couldn't leave Mm -hmm. my job. But Mm -hmm. if I did ask for pay, then I could only help a very certain subset of people, I guess, like a very specific subset of people um, who could afford it and who would pay. And those are the people who didn't necessarily need as much help as the people I wanted to help, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, Absolutely. And so it it kills me because I feel like there are so many women who are in care jobs who are, um, I guess they are kind of uh, swayed into coaching, into ther- away from therapy, away from nursing, away from teaching, etc., because there is the promise of a profit and the ability to continue to care. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I have a, a therapist, actually, that I have been working with uh, in terms of helping her with marketing copy. And, and she recently messaged me and was like, hey, people have been asking for coaching. So I need to put that on my website now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, you're a therapist. You don't need to be a coach. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is interesting. I think for me, there are two issues entwined with what you've you've just been describing. So we have the material realities. People need to be able to make a living. Absolutely. And yet at the same time, this it seems as though for most women who are starting businesses in the, this area, the only way that they can envision doing it is in very individual terms. As I said, this is about setting up individual endeavors, working for oneself, being a sole trader. And it's not about, for example, setting up a collective not-for-profit, which would be a way of potentially making a living, but it wouldn't be about that ultimate profit motive. And so I think this ties in then to the ideological situation we find ourselves in, which in the UK, at least, the shorthand that we use for this is TINA. There is no alternative. The idea that there's no alternative to capitalism. This is the only way that we can possibly organize society This is the only way we can organize our economic and political system. And therefore, anything that is within the bound without that is beyond the bounds of this model is almost unintelligible. People don't necessarily think of it. But what you're describing, it would be perfectly possible for people who want to work with women who are overcoming eating disorders, for example, to operate as a non as a not for profit. And yet that doesn't seem to be, at least among the women that I've spoken to, that just didn't come up. It wasn't really on their horizon. 
the only way of operating was to set up as a sole trader to become commercially viable by having a certain profit margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I can say for, you know, my own personal experience, I never would have thought of that, <laughs> you know, because I think part of it, too, is this idea of branding, right? You know, mm. the idea of owning the the material of being able to say, oh, well, I came up with this patented thing, which isn't really patented, but I put it on my website, so it's mine and you can't take it and don't use my hashtag or I'll come after you, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, because it's mine, I can't, I can only give it to you if you pay me, right? I have mm-hmm. earned the right to say, you know, so for example, my whole brand was discovery, not recovery. Um, so the mm-hmm. idea was I was teaching women how to stop living their lives as if their entire life was recovery, right? Um, you know, you move on to the next step and you discover what else there is in your life besides looking at pictures of food and posting how much you ate that day. Um, mm-hmm. And so and I, I would get angry or, or affronted if I saw people using that hashtag on their Instagram because they were also trying to become coaches or, you know, it was this feeling of like, this is mine and mm-hmm. my brand is me. So if you do that, you're taking away, you know, and, and I am the sole, you know, I'm the ability to earn capital. My brand is my social capital. It's my financial capital. Um, and if you take that brand away from me, then I can't get more. So I guess, yeah, there is no alternative mm. to capitalism, right? But if I give that to everybody, and I say, there is more to life after recovery. There is discovery. Mm-hmm. There are things that you can do that aren't focused on your body. And I just give that to people. That's helping a lot more people. It's just, okay, so what do you do with that, right? What, what do I then do in order to make money? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's in that mode of, of there is no alternative to capitalism. That's kind of how we think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I- I, I mean, I think on the issue of branding, I think that in many ways, this is actually caught up this kind of branding logic, which people are applying not only to their businesses, but really to themselves is really very much caught up with the kind of media through which wellness as a kind of a movement market has been formed. So I'm thinking here particularly of, of Instagram and the kind of visual branding that people create when they they have a profile, they have a page, and you have a clear aesthetic, you have certain kind of lines that you continually reiterate, and there's a clear branding logic on these kinds of platforms. But what's ironic then in relation to what you've said about people being quite uh, possessive of the brands that they develop is that in coming up through something like Instagram, you don't own your material. You have actually already, at the point of posting, signed over all of the images, everything that you post on Instagram is owned by the platform. So what's interesting here is that you have this dynamic whereby individual women are placed in a situation where they cannot really or don't, can't conceive of really collaborating with one another because they are so much placed in competition with one another. Meanwhile, capital is ultimately flowing upwards to these platforms. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Um, but the the messaging around it makes it seem like it's the other way around. Mm. Absolutely. We have this idea that social media has a democratizing force. 
And that particularly, I think particularly Instagram is not so much framed in terms of democratizing and the kind of connection logic that we see with Facebook, but really with entrepreneurship, at least in the context of the research I've been doing. And yet it creates a very questionable business. I mean, certainly just in terms of copyright for people's um, businesses, it creates a, quite a questionable foundation because you don't own anything that you've posted there. Right. Right. Um, that's, I mean, that's so, it's so interesting because nobody talks about that at all. This individualistic ethos, this self-centered, in the literal sense self-centered, business building, is very much modeled on the existing patriarchal capitalist system. In a way, it's a perpetuation of misogyny, this monetized self-care. What I mean by this is, by willingly participating in an economic system that asks women identifying people to value their bodies above all other potential contributions, to withhold help from people who cannot pay, and to become human capital, a brand that is dedicated to maintaining the system, to hustling, because they feel owed, they are perpetuating the same sort of anti-woman misogynistic behavior and mindset that has kept women from being valued in our society in the first place. Sarah Benet Weiser recently wrote a book about women and misogyny called Empowered, and I asked her about it during one of our conversations. So I'm actually interested a little bit in following that thread about misogyny in a way, but in how it ties into the way that women themselves govern themselves and each other um, and kind of how this ties into the neoliberal ethos. Um, so, you know, in one of the chapters, you talk about pickup artists. Um, and I found really interesting um, a quote in which you said, the route to self-confidence is to treat women like objects, um, but like other neoliberal practices, the focus is on the self, while the violence that underpins that focus is obscured as violence and is instead transfigured into self-confidence, right? So what I what I got from that, from that whole section, um, in context at least, um, is also kind of how women who become health coaches or who go into multi-level marketing or who take on these things in which they feel themselves develop worth, um, they feel themselves, um, they feel that they are uh, investing in their own self-confidence. They don't see it uh, as ex exploitation or violence against other women who are primarily the people who buy from them, right? Um, they instead see that as a form of, of self-empowerment. So, for example, when you confront somebody who's in a multi-level marketing company and say, you know, what you're doing is exploitative and they say, no, if somebody, you know, if somebody doesn't do well, that's not my fault. That's their fault. I, you know, yes, I got them into the company. Yes, they lost all their money, but that's their own fault. What I'm doing is building myself this network of amazing women and getting all kinds of accolades and whatever for, you know, the percent of essential oils I sold or whatever, right? Or like, or like health coaches who can charge, you know, a thousand dollars a session and, you know, women like myself who then go, well, I have to be working with a coach because I need to transform as well, will invest their life savings into something that ultimately turns out to be empty. But again, it's not about the violence that was perpetrated against another woman taking away her economic ability, right, based on this 
really messed up logic, but um, rather saying, no, but I'm building an empowering business. And as an entrepreneur, this isn't about who I hurt. This is about how I gain merit, how I gain worth, right? Yeah. So I just, I found that really interesting. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think that there's a lot there. I mean, I think that, that, um, uh, this idea of building self-confidence, um, and the way that, 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 um, that it's kind of being understood and, 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 and expressed in, in this neoliberal, uh, context is, is not just about the self. It's about the self in relationship to others, right? So it is, it is this, you know, it, we, we know that capitalism is by definition competitive. Um, and so to then become a self entrepreneur means that things like self-confidence or confidence itself, it becomes a kind of commodity that is exchanged like in a marketplace. So the chapter on pickup artists, um, one of the things about that is that there's this idea that when I say that it's not about necessarily treating women as objects, pickup artists recognize that women have sexual agency, right? Um, and that's the problem because they have agency. So they're not sleeping with these guys, you know? So, so, so it is, it is about, um, you know, kind of chipping away at that self-confidence because it, because the confidence that women um, acquire is seen to be at the expense of men's confidence as if it's a zero sum game, as if there's, it's a, there's a scarcity of confidence, right? But in a competitive um, environment, there is, that's, you know, that's the kind of, um, that's just the way that it's been. This is not a new thing, really. It's just taken to new heights, I think, with digital and social media. Um, you know, my, my first book was on, on the Miss America pageant and, and one of the things that I found so interesting about pageants when I started really researching them, because I didn't know very much about them, is this kind of be- like deep belief that that contestants would say, it doesn't matter who wins, we're all winners. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you're in a fucking contest. Of course, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, so so the, but there's this belief, you know, because that 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 self-confidence, we can all be self-confident. But it uh, almost always, at least in this context that we're you and I are talking about it, it is about it's it's at the expense of someone else's confidence. Here's Catherine Rottenberg again. There are different ways of thinking about um, harm, which is you can uh, doing being complicit in a system. We have no choice, right? So we're always complicit. It's not when there's never there's no way of sort of extracting ourselves from neoliberal rationality. The question is um, how in what in what ways can we challenge it not only on a personal level and i think some of the health coaches on a personal level right are helping people and we can't dismiss that we it's not it's not um but it's also at the same time uh, enabling uh, a, a a rationale and a rationality that is destroying the world and everything in it so i think that though we have to be able to sort of keep those two um, different le- perspectives or uh, uh, together on some level. So yeah, no, exactly. Um, and that, I mean, and that is that is kind of that 
that central tension of, of what's going on here in this in this particular, um, I guess, study, <laughs> informal study that I'm doing, you know, um, because, yeah, people are being helped, you know, um, and this is actually why I got out of doing recovery work. I was a recovery coach for several years. And, you know, part of it to me was, you know, individually, I am able to help women who can afford to pay me right. money. Right. Um, but at the same time I was, you know, by keeping my, the stuff that I had discovered about recovery, um, uh, about making it stick, about finding, you know, therapy that works, all of these things, I was keeping that away from other people so that I could make more money. It just, it didn't seem right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think there's, there's also a sense of, the helping the individual is, is also like putting a bandaid on a yes. festering wound and the wound is not the festering wound is ultimately gonna you know destroy all of us so exactly it's, it's uh so yeah yes yeah. terrifying essentially it is it is <laughs> the world is terrifying at the moment The world is terrifying, and as we discussed in previous episodes, when the world feels out of control, you look for the things that you can control, one of which is your body. We, as individuals, often feel like we have no outlet for creating actual global change, so we focus on our bodies, our health, our individual financial situations, our online visibility, because at least it feels like we're doing something. We want to be accountable only so far as it doesn't push us outside of the comfort zone of neoliberalism. Here's Andy Zeisler from Bitch Magazine again. We live in, you know, an increasingly, not just a neoliberal culture where there's this idea of sort of, you know, privatization, the market will fix everything, independence, um, you know, you can, you don't need the government. Uh, It's a meritocracy, but it's really not a meritocracy. There's this whole idea that like, you know, there's a, there's some sort of weakness in relying on any sort of communal approach uh, whether it's to education, whether it's to politics, whether it's to, uh, you know, jobs and money. Um, and, you know, under neoliberalism, much more of a mean-spirited society where it's not just that people who make a lot of money are unwilling to spread that money around to the people who most need it, but we're a society that believes that they don't deserve it and that the people who are able to make the most money somehow are intrinsically more deserving and thus have no, you know, accountability or responsibility to um, their, their fellow humans. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's sort of like I see where capitalism can be incredibly useful in terms of, um, you know, empowering um, offering resources to uh, communities and groups and uh, organizations that need it. But I think we fundamentally have to change the way we think about social responsibility. When we think of social responsibility these days, we think of it on individual terms. I can't change the world, but I can help some women feel better about their own bodies. I can start a blog that helps other women lose weight or get their periods back or grow stronger and more empowered. I can be accountable to my squad or build a community of like-minded women who want to grow and change together. I can't change the world, but I can have an impact in this small way. And our neoliberal culture reinforces and encourages that belief. Here's Catherine Rottenberg one more time. 
what I've come over the years to conclude, um, you know, and is that neoliberalism may actually need feminism and in order to solve one of its internal tensions in relation to gender. So, um, I, I, you know, in, in the book, it's a very theoretical explanation. But here, what I'll say is that neoliberalism, as I, as I was talking about before, is all about market metrics. There is no outside uh, to market metrics within a neoliberal rationality. Everything is reduced. Our political imagination, our, our, our uh, intimate affective life, private sphere. Um, so neoliberalism has no vocabulary except financial ones, except market ones, um, to, with which to address questions of reproduction and care work or, you know, or environmental disaster for that matter. But someone does need to do the care work uh, and neoliberalism does need human capital to sustain itself. So one, one of my uh, claims is that neoliberal feminism emerges precisely to ensure um, that a discourse of child rearing, of reproduction, um, continues to circulate as part of public common sense. Um, so uh, one of the things that neoliberal feminism as uh, sort of at least it was dominant for a particular period of time, does is that it encourages women to desire children. Um, this happy work-family balance means that women are encouraged and in some sense compelled to want a fulfilling career as well as a satisfying home life. Um, so you have, so on the one hand, you have this uh, sort of uh, norm uh, that's helping to shape women's desires. But of course, at the same time, you, neoliberal feminism as a dis discursive formation um, helps devolve any responsibility for reproduction and care work onto the shoulders of uh, individual women. So it helps the state to dissolve any kind of responsibility for care work or for reproduction um, uh, by creating this individualized um, uh, discourse. So it helps absolve the state and the community and even and often even partners um, from any responsibility for care work. Um, so that basically is how I understand the hows and the whys. Um, and by maintaining reproduction as part of middle class or what I would call aspirational women's sort of normative trajectory, this is what, you know, having it all means and positing balance as its normative ideal um, or ultimate ideal, um, neoliberal feminism thus ensures that all responsibility for these forms of labor, of course, not necessarily all the labor itself, since it's often uh, outsourced to other less privileged women, um, falls squarely on the shoulder of these so-called aspirational women. And so in our next episode, the last episode of the series, we're going to talk about the real elephant in the room, why we want to be accountable in every sense of the word, for caring about other people's bodies and health so much. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Reza Scott of RF Scott Imagery. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. 
Patrons who pledge $3 a month or more will get exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer, previously unreleased interviews. Just visit patreon.com bodybrandpod. This week's Patreon episode features Pace Smith. For show notes and links to the guests who appeared on today's episode, please visit bodybrandpod.com listen accountability. We're getting close to the end of season one. In fact, there's only one episode in the epilogue left. But that said, I still want to hear from you. So if you're a health coach, a yoga teacher, a personal trainer, or a wellness entrepreneur of any kind, or if you've considered becoming one, or if you've left the profession, I want to hear your story and potentially share it on a future podcast. You can send me a text email, or better yet, record a voice memo and email it to yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I really can't wait to hear your feedback on next week when we air the final episode of this podcast documentary. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.